Isaiah 35. The desert, the parched land will be glad. The wilderness will rejoice and blossom like the crocus will burst into bloom. Strengthen the feeble hands, steady the knees that give way. Say to those with fearful hearts, be strong, do not fear. Your God will come, he will come with vengeance, with divine retribution, he will come to save you. Then will the eyes of the blind be open, the ears of the deaf unstopped. Then will the lame leap like the deer, the mute tongue shout for joy. Water will gush forth in the wilderness and streams in the desert. We serve a God who makes a way where there is no way.
starting a new sermon series this morning. If you have your Bibles, turn to Matthew 16. This is one of those sermons where I don't quite know where it's going to go. I kind of do, but I don't, you know, I'm excited for it. I've entitled this next sermon series. It will be lasting throughout the summer months coming up, God, Life, and Our Expectations. I want to bring before you the question of what do you expect of Jesus? It's a sermon series that's going to be uh, challenging us to know that the kinds uh, of, the, of, of belief we have in Jesus, what you believe about Jesus, will determine your life's actions and how you interact with one another and how you interact with your neighbors. And as you develop those expectations of Jesus, you might be really surprised at just how much that affects us and how we live. And I want to look at um, th- this morning's sermon is kind of like a junk drawer sermon that will kind of be a, uh, a front door to the rest of the sermons that will be taking place over the course of the summer. I have other people lined up to preach that is not this mug, so you'll be seeing some other people. I'm sure you're getting sick of me. Um, so as we... 
Move forward, I want to point out a couple of things. And this is kind of big, big topics today that uh, will introduce us for what is coming up in the summer. The Christian church has held the majority position in terms of population that identify with Christianity um, up until, you know, fairly, really recent times. In 1940, uh, according to the Gallup polls, who's been actually taking polls like this since 1940, 73 to 75 percent of Americans were in regular attendance slash membership of a uh, Christian church or religious institution. It tracked all the way to about 70% up until year 2000. And just last year, using the same poll, the same metrics they've always used, that number has plummeted down to 47%. The past few years, just you can look at the graph, it is just, just, just plummeting quickly. And I think if you've known Jesus for any amount of time, you're, you're sensing this around us in our culture that things that once were more open to Christianity or maybe even perhaps shared a similar um, uh, uh, worldview, if you will, it's no longer the case, right? We are losing, if you will, the influence that was once had of the church on American society. And it's challenging us as a church because then the question becomes, well, what kind of Jesus do you believe in? What do you expect from him in terms of our response? To this? How will we respond to a shrinking church in a society? We're a democratic society, so as people vote and choose and make their influence known in a society that's driven by the people, naturally the country reflects to people that it, its own citizens. And so if more citizens are not sharing of belief in Jesus, then naturally the country itself will reflect that as well. How will we respond? What, what would, how would Jesus respond to something like this? And it's an interesting time because we're watching different portions of the church respond in different ways. I've been trying to ask myself, you know, how, how can we look at the responses of the church across the board and say, what, how is this exposing what they believe about Jesus? Things that maybe we have, we have assumed when it's being taken away from us in terms of our influence in this country well, what do you expect now of our behavior? How do we respond to this? One major response that I've seen is the church, many Christians get together and they have what I, well, I, I think I, maybe I'm stealing this, I forget, but what I like to call collective groaning. They get together and say, I can't believe what's happening. Did you see what happened in so-and-so state? Did you see what law was passed? Did you see what this person said and did publicly? I can't believe it. And they groan together. And they complain together. And it's just, you walk in the room and it's almost like you sense also like an anger. Like people, they get fired up about this stuff, right? And then as they complain to one another and the the, the tensions kind of rise, you just sense in the room like a a stress of like we're, we're losing ground, if you will. And so as they groan and as they moan, it's like they are shocked. And I I will put myself in this. I've been in part of these conversations as well. We have to remember that as more people do not share or have faith, if you will, in Christ and our nation, um, we shouldn't be too shocked when things happen around us in our society that do not reflect this. I mean, what else should we expect? But we need to temper our expectations, hence one reason why I'm doing this sermon 
series. Um, I think it's evidence that a lot of the churches is so used to having this position of majority that um, throughout the years, perhaps we've garnered some ill-informed expectations concerning Jesus and also others and how they live according to um, uh, Jesus himself that don't even have faith in him. And so one thing is, um, is that, you know, within the church is how, how do we respond to this? How do we live in society? How do we interact with society in that level? Do we collectively groan? Do we complain? How do we live um, with our neighbors? I'm going to address those kind of things throughout the summer and also this morning. Um, the second problem we have is also theological as as the society around us is, is drifting to a, a different kind of worldview, some of which maybe the church can affirm, some that we cannot, um, we must also be on guard ourselves in terms of what we believe and how it's getting influenced by uh, this post-Christian society that we're walking into. How do we ensure that the things that we are expecting of Christ, the kind of Jesus, if you will, that we believe in, that we think may be mirrored in here, are we sure that what is happening out there is not actually also infiltrating our own belief. And that some of the, the cultural rage that's happening out there hasn't infiltrated the church that we are trying to meet them in their own rage in order to compete with it and maintain our own influence in our nation. Do we have theological problems in the church in terms of what we are looking to Jesus to get from him? Uh, to guide us in how we are to interact in this post-Christian society. This is somewhat new ground for the church, right? Even when I was a kid, um, you know, down south, Wednesday nights and Sunday mornings, nothing was going on because Wednesday nights, everybody was in church. On Sunday morning, everybody was in church, right? And on the way here, every baseball field I went by was full this morning. Um, soccer games full. You know, we're entering into a different post-Christian society, and I want to address how do we live here? Because I think it is the most exciting time to be a Christian. I think it is the most open uh, opportunity we have to truly be Jesus in ways we have not actually had the chance to be and to be refined as a church. So I, for one, am really excited, and I hope that you will be excited with me and challenged along with me and be able to look at your own life and say, am I believing correctly about Jesus? Am I responding correctly to this? How, do, how would Jesus respond to this? Do I have the wrong expectations of Jesus? I want to look at Matthew 16 this morning because what happens is Peter also found himself at one time having ill-informed expectations of Jesus. We're going to see what happens to Peter when he realized, uh oh, I'm, I'm not believing correctly here. Because it affected his behavior. He never actually truly got it until much later in his life. And Matthew 16 is kind of one of the first times that we are, that Peter gets exposed for his wrong expectations of his Lord. And so as we dive into this, this is Matthew 16, beginning in verse 13. I'm going to read through a lot of scripture this morning. This is the word of the Lord. This is from the, um, the ESV translation. Now, when Jesus came into the district of Caesarea Philippi, he was with his disciples. He asked his disciples, who do, you, who do people say the Son of Man is? And they said, well, some say John the Baptist. Others say Elijah. And others, Jeremiah, one of the prophets. And he said to them, but who do you say that I am? Simon Peter replied, you're the Christ, the Son of 
of the living God. This is around midway in the Gospel of Matthew, and Jesus knows that uh, in this point of his ministry, after seeing healings and various things and just his preaching and his teaching, people have developed opinions. Like maybe Jesus is like one of the Old Testament prophets because there's some kind of vague prophecies like in Micah chapter, or Malachi chapter 4 about Elijah returning. There's In the book of Deuteronomy, there's this idea of this prophet like Moses that is to come and even some thought that Jeremiah or someone like Jeremiah would come and people are thinking maybe, maybe he's that like maybe he's one of those prophets that has returned or has come and so as they kind of threw out those opinions he said yes but i'm asking you now who do you say that i am and if you've read the gospels any amount of time you know peter loves to be the first one to respond whether it's a thoughtful response or not peter will respond and so he responds And he says, you are the Christ. You are the son of the living God. And if this was like the price is right, the bell would be dinging and everybody would be cheering like, yay, because he got it right, right? He he runs up on stage, you know. Is the price is right even here anymore? Is that a thing? I don't know. Is it? Okay. I used to love calling in, you know, or stay home, sit from school and watching the price is right. Anybody else do that when they're growing up? Yeah, that's right. So Peter gets this right. He swings, he hits the home run, and Jesus, he continues, he says, he says, blessed are you, Simon Barjona, for flesh and blood has not revealed this to you, but my Father who is in heaven. Peter, he, he got it right. He says, and I tell you, you are Peter, and on this rock I will build my church, and the gates of hell shall not prevail against it. I will give you the keys of the kingdom of heaven. And whatever you bind on earth shall be bound in heaven. Whatever you loose on earth shall be loosed in heaven. And then he strictly charged his disciples to tell no one that he was the Christ. Now, we could spend ages talking about these verses because there's a lot going on. But here, at minimum, is what's happening. Peter's name means rock. And Jesus said, you or his confession, or there's multiple kind of views here, but on Peter, on his confession that he is, that Christ was the Son of God, that the church would indeed be built. And we see that in Acts chapter 2 and 4, that Peter is the one who preaches the first Christian sermon, if you will, and the first one that introduces the idea that, oh, the church is not just for the Jews, but also for the Gentiles. So Peter, on Peter, the church indeed was built in that regard on his confession of Christ and his preaching of Jesus the church was built and Jesus says there's going to be such spiritual strength of this church that held itself if it were to wage war against the church would not prevail and the keys of heaven and binding loosing language at minimum means that this this church that would be built would be leading an assembly of men and women together, gathering in Jesus' name that will live and that will interact and do ministry on this earth that will reflect what is happening in heaven. That there will be a glimpse of heaven on earth through the church and through the authority of the church as it lives and interacts in this world. At minimum, there's a lot more going on, but that's all we can do this morning. Big expectations for Peter. That's exciting stuff. If you were Peter, you'd be like, yeah, got it. And he's like on top of things right now. But then Jesus says something a little curious. And he goes, now that I said that, shh, don't tell anybody. (laughs) 
And if you're, if you're, you know, an evangelical this morning who we've been taught to share our faith, or like, wait, what? That's like the best news ever. You're the son of God. What do you mean? Shh. Like, what do you mean be quiet? Because Jesus knew there's something important that must be done first before Peter and the rest of the disciples are to go and preach openly and widely about Jesus' messiahship and his identity as the son of God. Because something important still left to be done. And what was that? It was the cross. Because we're going to see, I'm going to skip ahead. Let me just continue on. In verse 21, it says, from that time, like uh, in all the gospels, Matthew, Mark, and Luke at least, when, when this confession of Peter took place, Jesus began being extremely clear to his disciples. Before it was vague, but now it's very clear. Verse 21, from that time, now that they know he's the Christ, they know he's the son of God, he began to show his disciples that he must go to Jerusalem and suffer many things from the elders and the chief priests and scribes and the Messiah, the son of God, must be killed. And on the third day, rise. Now, imagine being there and you hear that. He's like, yeah, I'm the son of God. Shh, don't tell anybody. I have to go die first. And you're thinking, whoa, whoa, whoa. Excuse me? Like a, a murdered Messiah? Like, if, if I think of, you know, a battle scenario, the people that get killed are not the ones that you would call your victors or your Messiah. Like, this is not expected, Jesus. Right? Our Savior, how can you save us if you're going to die? And this was Peter's uh, a problem. All the, the Jews of the time had this belief that was actually accurate, It was just missing an epoch or an era that a king like David would return and eventually overthrow the powers in this world to establish his people as the beacon and light of all nations. That all nations would be gathered then to know God through his people and they were waiting for another Messiah king like David to show up and to overthrow the Romans and to accomplish this grand plan of God's kingdom. They were waiting for that. That did not include that grand king to die. That's for sure. So what does Peter do when he hears this? Peter's expectations were informed over here. Jesus just literally said what he said. And Peter's like, I, no, that doesn't fit Jesus. Verse 22, Peter took Jesus, took him aside and began to rebuke him. Saying, far be it from you, Lord. This shall never happen to you. Now, here's a clash between what Peter expected from Jesus and from his own discipleship and following Jesus and what Jesus actually said. I want you to pay attention to that, right? He had expectations. Jesus literally said what's going to happen, and Peter still clung to his own expectations as if he knew better for, he had a better plan for Jesus. He had different expectations for his Lord. And whenever we have that in our life, eventually they will be exposed. Because Jesus will clash with that. He will confront that. And the question is going to be, what are you going to do then? If you're going to be like, Peter, you don't rebuke Jesus? <laughs> Say, I think I, I, you're getting this wrong, Lord. But Jesus turns aside to Peter in verse 23, get behind me, Satan. You are a hindrance to me. For you are not setting your mind on the things of God, but on the things of man. Peter, it seems, was already behind Jesus since Jesus turned to him, but 
um, uh, metaphorically speaking, Peter did try to step in front of him. His own rabbi teacher, his own Lord, he tried to step in front of and bring teaching to him. And Jesus immediately recognizes something more in Peter's attempted correction because this wasn't just Peter talking. This was another temptation that is coming to Jesus through the mouth of Peter that once already had come to Jesus. If you remember back in Matthew chapter 4 and the famous temptation in the wilderness, Satan one time tried to convince Jesus, you know what? You can become king of all nations without having to suffer. I know a shortcut. You can have the most broadest authority that you are going to have over all of this world one day. It says every knee shall bow and every tongue shall confess that Jesus is Lord. We know that day is coming and Satan does as well. And he offered it to Jesus without the cross. And he said, if you only worship me. And what is Peter doing? Jesus, we, we have a mission here. And the cross is not part of that. And Jesus says, oh boy, I've heard this one before. I've heard this story before, get behind me, because the cross is how he will rule all nations. The cross is the pathway to find his kingship and to gain his kingship and to sit on his throne. The cross is his throne. He was crowned, if you remember, as he hung on that cross. And Peter was trying once again to offer a shortcut, saying, you don't have to do this, Jesus. And Jesus says, be quiet, you're tempting me. And I don't want that temptation because the Lord's will is that I die and that I suffer. Could it be that you and I often have ill-informed expectations of Jesus in life as well? As we said before, this is new, a new chapter for us in this post-Christian society, not only as Emmanuel Church, but as Christians living in a nation that was once very friendly towards the Christian church, but now not so much. And a place where we were utterly um, today bombarded with, with visions and, and ideas of what the good life should be like, how we should think about other people and view others, how we should live and things that we should pursue in life and the values we should have and how we fight justice or pursue um, the reversal of injustice. All these conversations are present all around us. When we show up to the scriptures and even when we enter into prayer with Jesus, have you maybe thought to ask the question, are the things I'm praying for actually reflective of who Jesus is and his character or somewhere along the lines have I perhaps been ill-informed and I'm seeking a will of God that is not actually the will of God, but one that is influenced and informed by other means when Jesus is speaking clearly to us in his scriptures, and I am missing it. This is the challenge for us this summer. Because I believe also as the church, as we are stepping into the next chapter as Emmanuel Church, we want to increase discipleship here and be truly pursuing one another to mirror exactly who Jesus is by the power of the Spirit through the gifts given to us by the Holy Spirit to do so. This question is absolutely important. So how could Peter's Messiah allow himself to die? How could your Messiah allow your marriage to fall apart? How could your Messiah allow your friends or parents to suffer so greatly or allow you to suffer so greatly? How could your Messiah allow things in our culture like abortion to become more and more regular? Where is God? Why doesn't he just stop those things? And these questions go on and on and on. But once again, we must listen to the words of Jesus because Jesus is not done in this passage, 
right? He, he brings correction to, to Peter by casting a vision for actually what he should be expecting out of life, of life following Jesus. He says, basically, Peter and all disciples, everyone around me, this is what you should expect out of being my disciple. Jesus had the cross as his destination, and he says, you do too, disciples of mine. Verse 24, then Jesus told his disciples, if anyone will come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross and follow me. For whoever would save his life would lose it. But for whoever loses his life for my sake will find it. For what will it profit a man if he gains the whole world and forfeits his soul? Or what shall a man give in return for his soul? For the Son of Man is coming with, to, uh, going to come with his angels in the glory of his Father, and he will repay each person according to what he has done. For truly I say to you, there are some standing here who will not taste death until they see the Son of Man coming in his kingdom. So listen up, church. If you were here this morning, I suppose it's because you want to come after Jesus as his disciple. And this is what he has to say to us, to Peter, and still 2,000 years later to us reading this passage. These are our expectations for following Jesus and the kind of Lord that we are following. It begins with self-denial. It begins with taking up his cross. And it begins dragging that cross after the one who died on that cross. Romans 6 is very clear. The Christian life is one of being baptized into the death of Jesus and is one being raised to newness of life just like Jesus was. A life of resurrection power that we deny ourselves, that we live for God and expend ourselves for others in love for the glories of Jesus Christ. Jesus says that if you want to truly live, you must actually die. And only in losing your life will you find your life. Because a fullness of life cannot be found if you are at the center of your own life. The fullness of life is found when Jesus is at the center. I want to read this from Romans chapter 12 as, as Paul refers to us. I don't know of a better analogy, but I don't know. I don't really watch the zombie movies, but this is kind of like zombie language. All right, just listen. Romans 12, I appeal to you, therefore, brothers, by the mercies of God, to present your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable to God, which is your spiritual worship. A sacrifice is dead, but you're a living dead person. That's what Paul says. Because you are continually dying to yourself, and as you continually die to yourself, you're actually discovering life. And that's the beauty of this. That's the resurrection power. That's the kind of resurrection life that Jesus calls us to. All the way back in the garden, sin was the idea that we can have so much authority that we know as well as God or even perhaps better than God of what is good and what is true, that we can take that fruit on our own initiative. And Jesus, in the, as he went to the cross, he once again humbled us. And said so that sin was worthy of death. You need to rem be reminded once and for all that you're my people. And that when you pursue yourself as if you are God, that is not life. Life is found in me. I'm going to wipe away that sin that is just welling up in your life. I'm going to pay for it on my own. I'm going to restore you to myself. And as you deny yourself and look to God and love your neighbor, you will find life. That's what Jesus says. So yes, be a walking dead person. How does that look? Romans chapter 12, Paul goes on 
I won't read it all in Romans 12, 3 through 8. He immediately goes to what it looks like in church community. Loving each other, serving one another, using the gifts that God unleashes on you, not for yourself or your own gain, but for the gain of those around you. Life becomes about those around you. In verses 9 through 13, Romans 12, he continues. He says, this is like a bunch of junk drawer stuff, random things, but just consider the posture of the Christian life here. Let love be genuine, Romans 12, verse 9. Abhor what is evil. Hold fast to what is good. Love one another with brotherly affection. Outdo one another in showing honor. Do not be slothful in zeal. Be fervent in the spirit. Serve the Lord. Rejoice in hope. Be patient in tribulation. Be constant in prayer. Contribute to the needs of the saints and seek to show, seek to show hospitality. He continues on. If possible, as far as it depends on you, in verse uh, 18, live peaceably with all. Never avenge yourself, but leave it to the wrath of God. Vengeance is mine, says the Lord. I will repay. To the contrary, if your enemy is hungry, feed him. If he is thirsty, give him something to drink. For by doing so, you will heat burning coals on his head. Do not be overcome by evil, but be overcome by good. Most Bibles call this the little headline, Marks of a true Christian, marks of the Christian life. This is the Christian life. This is the cross-shaped life. I've said it before, the cross is not just the source of your salvation, it is the shape of your salvation. The cross is not the source, only the source of your salvation, but is also the shape of your salvation. And you can read other crazy things that makes no sense. I'm telling you guys, you know, I'm gonna close here in a minute that if we learn to live this way in the 21st century, people are gonna be enthralled. Listen, 1 Corinthians 6, what would drive Paul to say this after learning that people were suing one another in a church? What did Paul say in verse seven, 1 Corinthians 6, 7? To have lawsuits at all in this church to one another is already a defeat for you. Why not suffer wrong? Why not rather be defrauded? Could you imagine getting that counsel for somebody? Right? I got defrauded. What do I do? Well, why not rather be defrauded? How, how does one come to those conclusions? Right? That's not found anywhere in our society. Where do those conclusions go to? Right? It is looking beyond the material, looking to the person who defrauded you, and it's looking at forgiveness as an option to say, I actually, I forgive you. Don't worry. I'm not seeking vengeance. I, I forgive you. I don't have any money left. You defrauded me, but you want a meal? I'll come have dinner with me. It's that kind of posture that we are called to as a Christian. As we close, I want to be just a little bit controversial, kind of, not really. But I was trying to think of like, what is a good example to say, you know, what kind of posture does the church seem to be slipping into today? And what is a helpful, you know, uh, 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 analogy or person or story that could perhaps bring some guidance to us? As I see the church slipping from influence, as I see Christians trying to figure out how do we respond to all this, all the stuff we just talked about, I feel like some people, if Jesus showed up today, uh, you know, incarnate right before us, People would love as if Jesus would show up like John Wayne. All right, tough guy, you know, Smith and Wesson, riding a horse bareback, you know, with no saddle, and just punching his way through all. We have an obsession in our culture with that kind of tough guy, you know, stuff. When I was a kid, it was like Bruce Willis and Sylvester Stallone and all the idea of the lone hero, the braveheart hero going in and just, rah, you know, punching through all the, the evil and wickedness. And I think that Christians today kind of want a leader like that or kind of want a Jesus like that. 
the John Wayne Jesus. And I think they would be satisfied, actually, with a leader like that. And I, I want you to consider the things I just read. Where's John Wayne in that, guys? Where's that kind of, that, that strong, like, you know, boldness of just punching away? The, where is that here? I don't see it anywhere. You know what I see, though, in here is an unlikely hero, if you will, that the church didn't really cling to as an example for themselves of, of, of an image bearer who lived, I think, in many ways as a Christian should. We just didn't know what to do. We didn't really talk about it much. Because I think if Jesus showed up today, he'd be wearing a sweater vest, leading a show for children, singing songs like, it's a beautiful day in the neighborhood. You know what I'm talking about. There's a remarkable story that just, you know, it's only kind of now becoming as popular. I guess it's been popular for a while. 1969. We know it was a tumultuous year in American, you know, life. Civil war, uh, the, the, the civil rights was fresh. Um, it, it was a violent time. Um, it was just a, a very tumultuous time. On national TV, there was only, I, th I think I read two, maybe three um, uh, African-American actors even visible on television. Okay, it was that kind of period as we know in the 60s. And what does Mr. Rogers do? In the middle of 1969, he invites a black man on the show. Actually, for 30 years, the man held um, a position on his show. And he, he says, wear a, a cop uniform and, and come sit next to me on the show and he'll walk you through. And they, he comes and, and Mr. Rogers is actually sitting in this pool, like a little kiddie pool, his feet are in it. And he says, come, you ever you know, washed your feet and taken a, you know, a foot bath. They're so peaceful. And they sat and they sung a song to one another about loving each other. 1969, both of their feet is in the pool. And what is this peaceful, quiet, you know, serene music playing? Um, you know, when, when uh, uh, Mr. Um, Collins, I think was his name, he removes his feet from the pool. What does Mr. Rogers do immediately? He grabs a towel and starts washing the man's feet. In 1969, a white man washing a black man's feet on television, no one was doing that. Nobody. And of course, he was intentionally doing it because he was a Christian. He never hid his faith. Everything he did, he sought to have informed by his faith. And that story kind of surfaced and rose above all the other stories that was happening in 1969, a lot of the stories that was happening. I said, what is that? Where does that come from? Guys, listen to me. As we close today, I use that example to say, we need to drop, I believe, if you disagree with me, prove me wrong, I don't know. We need to drop the John Wayne Christianity and find the kind of Mr. Rogers Christianity. Because in the world out there, they're not going to just be listening to what we say we believe, they're gonna be looking for how we live. And if we expect Jesus to show up like John Wayne and to punch his way through, we need to be reminded that he died he gave up his life for you and I. And he said, take up that cross and expend yourself for others in my name. Love others like I loved them. Even when society says, what are you doing? You do it anyway. That's the call of the Christian life. And if we are rightfully informed of those expectations from Jesus with well, a watching world right now as the world rages, and if we learn to love like Jesus loved, people will be saying, what? Where is this coming from? And as Peter said, be prepared to have an answer. 
And so this summer, I intend to guide us toward that single conversation as we explore various topics and various things in life, you know, marriage, how does the church actually interact with society? What are our expectations when it comes to our relationships and Jesus in the 21st century and all these various, you know, loving others and justice and all these kind of conversations? How do we have these things informed by scripture? Because if we can live this out in our post-Christian world, we will look differently than the world. And the world is going to be scratching their heads wondering, who are these people? Because 2,000 years ago, you know how the church grew? Not by evangelism, but because of the love they have for one another. May that be true here at Emmanuel. I want to call up Jim as he um, is going to lead us into communion now. And as he's coming up, I'm going to pray. Jesus, um, thank you for the cross. Thank you that your Holy Spirit wants to shape us into the cross, Lord. When we were baptized in you, Lord, we were baptized into that death, Lord. And that we were raised to walk in the newness of life, which involves a regular death, Lord. Lord, if there's incorrect notions of how we respond in this post-Christian world, of how we ourselves have responded in anger or in just vice or in just spewing social media posts or, or whatever it may be, or even our own life, if unexpected things are happening and we're just seem to be confused about you, Lord, I pray that we can have ears to listen to you, to just read your words and to let you speak and, Lord, let you challenge us to a love that is supernatural. A love that is not found in this culture, in this society, Lord. A love that is a heavenly love. Would you fill us with that, Jesus? Give us opportunities to love our neighbors, Lord. Regardless of where they are in life, Lord, put us in the middle of those pathways that we may be washing the feet of our neighbors, Lord, serving them, cutting their grass, caring for them, giving meals when they're sick, Lord, just loving them in ways that, um, that they desperately need, Lord. So would you insert us into those relationships, Lord, maybe be willing to be your ambassadors, Lord. Give us a patience as we do so, Lord. May we not be a hammer of truth, Lord, but a, a gentle, patient um, ambassador of truth, Lord, that is full of grace and full of truth. Lord, these are interesting times we're living in, so Lord, I pray that we can be, once again, as the church has been called to be for 2,000 years, Lord, the, 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 the Christian church can surface as distinct and unique from all that is happening around us, Lord. We love you, Jesus, so much. We pray this in your name. Amen. Oh, man.
Down to the lake. 